This is Triathlon Therapy with your host, Danny McKenna, professional athlete and coach, Tim Reed, and... That's too much time. Look at Steve McKenna. Steve, what are you doing, Steve? That's too much time. Advantage Reed. All right, we're back again this week. And again this week, the episode is being brought to you by Aid Station. Uh, We're running back the competition that we did last week or or two weeks ago for the Ironman 70.3 World Champs where Aid Station donated some uh, vouchers for for the main prizes. So get onto our Instagram, follow us there, follow them on their Instagram, make your picks this week for the Nice Ironman World Champs and uh, go on the chance to to win some hundreds of dollars of of vouchers for Aid Station and a couple tri-therapy cups, which is probably more valuable. Uh, So basically that... You need to do all the ads from now on. Steve is banned officially. <laughs> uh, if we're following Steve's playbook on that, this would go for about another 15 minutes and it would just get progressively worse. <laughs> well, speaking of Steve and unfortunate events, um, obviously the world champs didn't go exactly to plan. Um, so probably a good starting point maybe uh, to, to talk about today. Yeah, I think um, I think Steve and I both identified a lot of things we could have done a fair bit better going into it. Um, I won't go too deep into it. We we I, I, the main lesson that we took out of it was the communication just had to be better. He just loves training, and he won't tell me sometimes when he's getting tired. Um, so <laughs> so this this is where the communication is now at. These are the messages that went back and forth yesterday to show you how serious Steve takes my advice. Yeah, that'd be actually a huge relief. Oh, wrong one. Two on the Menjay Joban. Tam Joban. I will see you then, or I will see you on another time. <laughs> <laughs> what up, dogs? Big Snoop Deal Double G. <laughs> Letters on the Menjay. So, what we can gather from that. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, he's hard to, yeah, he, he struggles to take things seriously, but that's why we love him. But also I, I think that with 70.3 world champs and Hawaii, any world champs, a lot of the guys that have done really, really well tend to learn from a bit of a hard day out there. Look at Hawaii, especially. I mean, even, even Jan Fredino at 70.3 worlds, the first time he raced, I remember running past him at like seven or eight kilometers and he's on this by the side of the run course in just fully cramping up. And he ended up DNFing. I think I DNF my first seven uh, that day as well. I don't know if that was my first one, but I did DNF my first one, came back the next year, went top 10 and got better as I went. Um, and Hawaii is a classic example, you know, Macca in Hawaii, the first year DNF'd, I think, or finished 150th. And you learn your lessons um, in the prep, you learn your lessons from during the race. And we certainly made quite a few mistakes that um, we will fix up. And I think sometimes these failures, as heartbreaking as they are, they really set you up for future success. And in many ways, a, an okay race where potentially he finished ninth or 10th, there might not have been the necessary changes that needed to be made. Um, the obvious ones are we have to monitor recovery better. Steve's never will be first to admit that he's not good at that. He just loves to train hard. And uh, despite many requests, just um, it's been hard to convince how important that objective data is. So we're going to really focus more on that. Um, I think racing in Europe, you realise how important the testing is in terms of 
all the aerodynamic testing, um, having a real set plan on the course as well and the right gearing, um, knowing exactly things like for the first time, Steve wore his sleeves down on his under his wetsuit, which he'd never done before, felt super restricted in the swim, just a lot of things. And, and, and I was probably not chasing him hard enough. Um, as a coach, I think coaching a pro, you've got to be in contact with your athlete if they're away on a training camp every couple of days to really dial into what they're doing. And uh, regrettably, I sort of left him a little bit more to his own devices than I will next time. But when we like when you say that, Reedy, like a lot of the time we've talked about it a few times on the podcasts where um, if you know the human, like if you're friends with them or, or you, you've spent a lot of time like coaching them over the years, when they tell you, you know, everything's going OK, it's a bit like well, you got to read between the lines a bit, I guess. And Steve kept saying it was all going OK. So. You might be being a little bit hard on yourself, mate. Well, I, he's not lying when he says two weeks out, two and a half, three weeks out. He was putting out the best numbers yeah. ever. It's just the hardest part is the amount of rest you need going into a race. And the tape is always the part that makes me the most nervous. Anyone can do the hard training block to get really fit, but then you've got to get fresh. The, the, far, the most fit person doesn't win. The most fit, fresh person wins. And that's the hard part to get right. And um Certainly for Taupo, I hope to actually be with him to sort of get that right and read between the lines rather than um, someone who froths on training. You've really got to you've got to see them to know how tired they are and definitely see things like HRV, resting heart rate and sleep data. Do you guys um, think you'll, on the other world champs next year at Kona, do you guys go to that on a, from a coaching perspective? Do you, would you think you'll head over or one of you will head over? Firm yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Clint, Clint's even going over this year to Hawaii. Um, I'll let you talk about that, Clint. You can, Mate, you can yeah. feel the airwaves. <laughs> we've actually, like, we've got a really solid, like, from now until the end of the year and and into early next year in terms of, um, yeah, just travelling to, to all the races because we did put out a survey not long ago and uh, asked people what they, what they like, what they dislike. And one of the main things was they do like the community aspect and also having the support there to you know ease your mind or talk about you know just spend some time together before the race um yeah i'm going over for the week of hawaii we don't have heaps of athletes but it's just worthwhile um and more so to make sure that you know we can meet with brands meet with people who want to chat about potentially being coached or whatever and then it'll put us in a good good spot for next year um and then, yeah, for next year, we'll certainly, we're going to, like, it looks like we're going to have a pretty big crew for next year who really want to go and do Hawaii again. And then it'll be straight into New Zealand as well next year. So, um, yeah, we'll be at, we'll, I'll, I'll definitely go to both because I think it's worthwhile for sure. <laughs> Speaking of world champs, Ironman world champs in Nice this weekend. So what do we think uh, about that race? To start with, I am more excited about this than Kona, if I'm totally honest. I just, that course is going to make things so interesting. It, it just opens the race up to unusual suspects. You know, we know with Kona who's going to come through um, later into that run of the marathon. You know, you're going to have your usual low sweaters just power on through in the last 10 or 15K. This one's just super interesting. That course is legit. You've got to be able to ride a bike uphill downhill there's a fair bit that's not on not on climbs too 
Uh, Clint, you excited? Yeah, I, I wasn't at the start. I was because just being an old school tri-frother, I thought to myself, you know, they've ruined Hawaii. But when you look at all those hitters on that course, um, and I watched a few of um, Babbitt's interviews, and he was, and, and seems like everyone's saying, oh, I've really been specifically preparing for the course. So I think it was the Kenyans head of development or whatever he is said that um, it's not necessarily going to be the fittest person who wins. It's the most prepared, uh, which I, I, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, mm. But we did have a bit of a look through um, one of the surprising things, 17 of the 50 odd competitors, it's their first world champs. So, I mean, yes, there's positives. Uh, there's negatives to, to moving the world champs, but there's also positives like, a lot of the Euro guys get a chance to have a crack at a almost a hometown event. Um, surprised how little Aussies are there, Reedy? Oh, I'm not that surprised. I mean, with the exception of Cam Worth, who's obviously, as a pro cyclist, learned how to ride climbs like that and descend. It's just not really in the wheelhouse of a lot of triathletes. Uh, sorry, Australian triathletes. So it's hard to catch up on you know, someone who's been riding their bikes since they were 10 or 11 on those sort of descents. Like it's hard to catch up skill wise. Um, I've always found the Aussies were great on little punch, punchy climbs with rough roads. Cause that's how most of us, a lot, that's the roads that a lot of us train on, but on those big switchback hard descents, it's uh, you get really shown up by guys that have been doing it their whole life. So I'm not that surprised. Um, yeah. I think of the Aussies though, I think Cam, this is a great course for him. I, I'd be, I haven't actually spoken to him recently. I'd love to know how much he's been putting into this. It seems like he was switching very much back into triathlon focus. Um, so hopefully for the sake of Australia, he does exceptionally well. Typical um, Cam doing Cam things, um, driving through there after one of his Ironmans and Nice Ironman was on. So he decided to go and check out the course and ended up what third or something. So yeah, he's, um, he did say that he, he's been it's pretty specific with the training this time instead of just turning up and, and trying to fluff it through the marathon and qualify. So, yeah, it would be really interesting to see how he can – I think there'll be a lot of people who can affect the race. And what you say in terms of um, the guys who um, – like being local or, or, or it's so hard for Aussies to travel, like the – I looked through and the French guys especially who did a bit of insta-stalking um a lot of them have seemed to have been there for a month or two uh or, or back and forward from there and and when you when you're comfortable on a course and, and know the descents and know where it's going to get a bit grippy and and just are, are very familiar with it i think that's a huge advantage so um yeah the french guys will probably be the ones who you'll look to to be patient but the i mean the best part is that at 120 k's, there's another big climb. Like there's the first climb, and then there's another one. I think that's where people's wheels will really fall off. Which sitting at home in your air conditioning's good to watch. I, I love that the climbs are long enough and steep enough that people are going to be very creative with their bike choices. Um, you're going to see a lot of road bikes with uh, TT front ends. You the like normally in most races the physics behind saving one or two kilos on your bike really doesn't matter. But for this race, it really matters. Um, when you're talking small percentages that make a huge difference in an Ironman world championship, 
one or two kilos saved on your frame, especially for some of the smaller guys, will keep them in the mix. Um, obviously, you've got guys like Rudy von Berg who tore the course apart when it was 70.3 worlds there, particularly on the descents. I think the descents is where you'll see gaps really open up. Um, how does Laidlow descend and climb hills, guys? Uh, he's been there a while. Like, oh, he's been back and forward from there. And I know that, like, although back and guards out, I know Kenyon were there like three or four months ago testing all the different options for bikes for all their athletes. So I th he rides a bike pretty well, but I think that the number one thing is that he's going to be very well prepared. Like he'll be on the best equipment where you see people like, I love Joe Skipper, like such a champion and just rips in. But I don't imagine that his crazy front end set up with the extra weight of the aero bottles and, and the way he's TT set up. I just can't see that being very efficient to descend. He might prove me wrong, but um, yeah, back to what yeah. the guys from Kenyon said, the best prepared will probably be the ones who, who make the most damage on the downhill. Yeah, it's hard, it is hard to descend when you're so far over that front axle, um, which a lot of the TT positions now are. I mean, we're finding more and more guys coming out of the wind tunnel and velodrome with their arms further out in front. Um, saddles are still quite far forward, but that's fantastic for a you know a flat course where aerodynamics is everything but having this the uh, handling on the bike it gets pretty tricky when you're that far over the over the the weight of the bike um yeah it, it's going to be it's going to be a real fun one to watch any dark horses for you guys that people wouldn't be talking about no i just think back to the french guys i i don't yeah. have specifics i know like Dennis Chevreau, what he ran through 14 of the guys at the PTO event, um, ran a 231 at Hamburg and just ran past everyone like he was. they were standing still. Um, got off the bike with the main group there. So probably Chevreau, but besides that, I think it would be very much like 70.3 Worlds where you'll be like, who's who's this guy in third? You know, the guys yeah, yeah. who – yeah, so it's – um. It'll be interesting. Danny? Oh, I don't have a pick or anything like that, but it's just interesting that you look at even Kona the last couple of years, you know, I don't think Christian or Gustav, um, and, and sorry, Christian won, what was it, St. George the year before that. Like, you know, they've just rolled in and just won it. Like forever it was you need to do Kona like, what, five or ten times or something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, something crazy happens here, like you said, Clint. Yeah, and I think it'll be the same as what we see. We saw at seventy point three worlds, wherever the race is, you tend to see the local athletes really shine. So I, I predict you'll see seven or eight out of ten from Europe in the top ten, um, which is it's great because it's at least it's hopefully a rotating. Oh, it might just stay at Nice and Hawaii, but if uh, <laughs> in the sake of, for the interest of fairness, I hope that at least Nice or Kona or other, other races roll into that um, cycle of locations because so ideally yeah. like every two years, right. If they did male, female, and then they move it on like from Nice and they go to like wherever they choose to go. But yeah, if they can obviously keep every um, Hawaii as the kind of staple and then the other race kind of rotates, that'd be, that'd be awesome. 100%. So Andrew, Andrew, we know you're listening. <laughs> so, um, just Andrew's a bit done. of advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's finished up, mate. Whoever the new guy is or lady. 
Um, just a quick one. You guys might have noticed my sleek new uh, headphones. The someone from Skull Candy Australia actually reached out and was absolutely devastated with my headphone choice from uh, our last episode where I just borrowed Oscar's headphones and slammed them on. They were <laughs> cheap kids ones. Uh, so he sent us two pairs of Skull Candy headphones. We've officially made it as a podcast when you start getting free, free gear. Um, so thanks to Skull Candy for that. Get on board, anyone who's listening who wants good headphones for training or for doing very under-listened podcasts. Reedy, <laughs> j- just so you know, <laughs> there were several people who reached out to me as well and said, what are those things that Reed's wearing? So uh, it was a <laughs> yeah. very strategic play from Reed because he wanted some new headphones. So well done, mate. <laughs> uh, I wish I planned that, but um, I'm not, I don't have time to plan that out. Sorry. <laughs> Moving on to fan questions. First one, does high swim volume contribute to bike slash run fitness, especially if swimming is the focus? 100%. Can I'll chime in here with a personal experience. Uh, got a coach once just after Hawaii, um, meant to be my off season. And um, I think I swam my longest swim session in the off season by about two Ks. And that was uh, that was his his reasoning behind it, saying that uh, aerobic fitness is always going to build, and it's obviously it's not going to be specific to bike and run muscular fitness. But um, yeah, that was Tim Reed made me go and swim six or seven k's in the off season. So explain yourself. Well, even when we talked to Braden, you know, he had fastest run at Cairns and swimming, doing a lot of his um, volume in the pool. Uh, I think it's a great way for people. I used to get a bit plump in the off season. So I would start back six or seven kilos over race weight. I couldn't run much because I'd get injured straight away. So I would start back with quite high swim volume and bike volume to just get my weight back down before I could bring back any sort of weight bearing on my little legs. A 20K swim week isn't that long in terms of time, but you get massive be- like aerobic benefit from doing something like that. Whereas... Yeah, a long swim session's 90 minutes, whereas a long ride's six hours. Yeah, so. the hard the hard part, and I, I always said the hardest part with getting back into swimming was conditioning your brain to become numb again, to being okay with silence, a black line, and just counting through a set or focusing on one aspect of your stroke. It's very difficult from a mental um, perspective because it if you haven't been swimming much, 2K seems like an eternity. But as you, if you gradually build it back up, uh, especially if you start doing five, six K sessions, suddenly a three or four K session seems pretty manageable. Um, I'm, of course, I'm talking more from a pro perspective, but yeah, it's it's about conditioning the brain, and um, the brain adapts pretty quickly to high volume swims. And and to this day, I bloody love swimming now because it's my even though I only do one or two K swims at the moment, I it's my time to switch off. No phones, no one can interrupt me. Just head underwater focus on my breathing, staying relaxed, and it's good for the soul. Embracing the head noise. <laughs> do, you guys the, struggle, head noise yeah. do you guys struggle as coaches to convince your athletes or, or really get them to swim aerobically? Because I personally hate zone one, zone two, 3K, zone one, zone two swim, like easy swim, like it just it it just doubles that that mental battle in my mind, and um, I know a few other people I've spoken to are the same. So a few hot tips for that: get a swim metronome. It gives you something to focus on, even when you're swimming easy. 
Um, don't be scared of mixing in toys. Some people think that toys are bad. I think whatever gets you motivated and enjoying the swim is very helpful, whether it's floaty pants, different sorts of paddles. I used to have a full array of things at the end of the pool just to keep my brain stimulated. Um, and yeah, just get get comfortable with it or find a different sport. It's it's also <laughs> it, um, in in regards to like easy swimming. It's I mean, it's a lot better for you in terms of recovery, as opposed to like there's no such thing as an, a recovery run really. I mean, we'll yeah. probably get some pushback for that, but where um, easy swimming certainly helps with recovery from sessions. So. If you just turn up and think of it as a time to, you're still working, like you're still training to be better. You can just work on technique. You can you can turn up to the pool and go, I'm going to work on this and this today. And you can be doing it at a very low intensity, but it helps you learn better technique, then it's still very worthwhile. Why is it easier to stay aero if you have a tailwind rather than pushing into a headwind? So even when you're riding, um, it's very rare that you would have a direct headwind. Um, even if you are do have a headwind, you're swiveling your body slightly every time you pedal too. So you do have slight your angle changes pretty much every second just because of the way we pedal bikes. There's a lot of core stability involved as soon as there is um, wind. So you have side force pushing you, pushing your front wheel even slightly. It creates, you actually use a lot of energy to stabilize your bike, to stabilize your front end. You might switch on your core a little bit more. Um, so part of the reason is you're stabilizing the bike. The other reason is I think it's a little bit like riding on a magnetic trainer. You lose that inertia of the um, the pedaling to a degree. Um, but the biggest thing I think is it's psychological. Yeah. You are riding power and you're probably doing totally fine, but you feel like you're going nowhere. So you start getting shitty, you do these little surges, suddenly you ruin your rhythm. Um, where the opposite's true, when, you're, when you've are when got a nice tailwind, you're ticking along at 50k an hour, you're just like, oh, I'm killing it. And you stay on stay on board with the plan. I think it's only 90% of that is just mental. You know, you, ju you just, you start to have those negative thoughts straight away of, oh, look at my speed, look how hard I'm working, look at my average dropping um all, all those kind of things but yeah it it shouldn't if you use your tools right your heart rate and your power and you've got a relatively good technique on the bike it shouldn't be any harder if it's just a mental it's only mentally harder next question is eating high sugar food post hard training a good idea no full stop uh, no. <laughs> yeah i mean Eating some carbohydrate post-session, the science says that it will help uh, recovery. It helps you absorb the protein. Um, it also is, yeah, it, it does aid recovery. That doesn't mean it needs to be super simple sugars, uh, in my opinion. A lot of other coaches would say the opposite. Um, I'm more about long-term health and people being in the sport a long time and staying as healthy as possible with minimal inflammation, lower... Um, insulin sort of reactions after eating those sort of foods and i think that yeah long term you're better off having a healthier source of carbs with your protein two things there ready um, we spoke about that with dan plus on the last episode where if you become very dependent on that kind of food then when you're not burning the calories you, you're gonna really struggle to um, maintain weight 
And also, I mean, real world scenarios with that is if you're eating a healthy diet and not just pumping in simple sugars, I feel like your recovery is a lot better and the inflammation in your body is less. So like to, to just try and get your calories from simple sugar can, can mean that recovery is compromised. Is um, everyone's different obviously. And so what the right foods to eat might be slightly different for everyone. Do you guys have examples of like, you know, Clint, if you just finished up a three hour ride, what, what are the kind of things like a smoothie or like what kind of stuff would, just, would you just eat? before you answer Clint, I think it's important to realize it's in the context of what's coming up to. So do you have another session that day? Is it the last session of the day and you've got a rest day tomorrow? Do you have VO2 max tomorrow? Like you have to think ahead to what you're eating for what, what, what is the next session? What fuel is going to be really required for that session? Are you in a glycolytic state for much of it? If so, let's beef up the carbohydrate intake a little bit more. If it's a zone two ride, um, the next, you know, an easy spin or a, just a slow jog, then potentially I would go higher protein and fat. Clint, sorry to cut you no, off. No, you, you've, you've nailed it. Um, and you've said it in a lot better way than I would have. It's, um, but the word that you use that I think is very right is fuel. You got to think of your, your eating patterns as fueling patterns. You know, if you've done a big session, then um, replace the fuel that you've burnt. And also, yeah, as Reedy said, looking forward to what you've got coming up, you need to fuel accordingly. And it's something that I've had a few conversations recently with athletes who when you're under fueling, it's very hard to, and a lot of it um, presents as like emotionally, they're pretty emotional. They're just not fueling enough and like they're down in the dumps and, 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 and not coping emotionally. And I'm like, it's not the training load. When we actually break it down, it's just they're not fueling well enough for the sessions. Do you have any views about strength training for a triathlete? I find it hard to fit it in or is it worth me finding the time to do this? It's worth finding the time because the time, it, it's not a, a massive time constraint. Like it can be 15 or 20 minutes is enough to, especially with all the other training that we do, to bring on the specific load that you need to, to make a difference. So short and often is, is, is how I've done it. And it's something that I think we all get a little bit lazy with when, when we're not highly motivated or have specific goals, but I, I definitely think it helps to minimize injury and just efficiency in what we do. Ready? Yeah. I, I think it's one of the more time efficient things you can do. Um, I think that, that Clint's right. It's about consistency for the athletes I have that just simply keep skipping the strength session. I just start building it into their, run or ride i'll be like hey i want four pistols four sets of eight pistol squats before you head out or some bulgarian split squats or <laughs> let's do so there's only three or four exercises but it's part of their run session and even that um can be enough to start keeping particularly glutes activated helping them keep a neutral spine through a lot of the exercise through a lot of their activities and preventing injury the name of the game is always um consistency and if you can keep an athlete from getting injured, it, they end up improving longer term. The thing that um, I think a, a misconception with it is that you need to go to a gym and do it. You can do 
99% of the things that are beneficial at home. Um, so you've just got to come up with the right. And, and what I say to a lot of the guys is it, when you get it to a, a, a point where it's just autonomous, you don't have to actually read it and go, Bulgarian split squats, all right, and then and then do it. It's like you, you just know your routine and you run through it. Then it becomes, then all of a sudden it becomes enjoyable and easy to put into your, your day. So just the other argument is sort of the Brett Sutton style of you can do all the strength work on um, the bike run very specific strength work. And and I don't disagree with that. Um, if you have a coach who's watching you do strength endurance efforts on the bike and making sure that everything is perfectly done te technique wise, um, you certainly can build strength specific, uh, sorry, specific strength on the bike, in the swim, on the run. Um, I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. <laughs> How much does your training prescription change due to course specifics, e.g. Nice versus Kona or a place like Bustleton in WA? Um, I don't think it changes your, a lot of your supporting sessions, your easy supporting sessions, your easy ride, your easy run, a lot of your volume, to be honest, is not going to change that much. It will change your key sessions quite a lot. Um, I think it's good to simulate the courses the course sort of terrain um the temperatures all those sort of things are very important in your specific sets especially as you get closer to races and start doing more of that race specific work that's where it really changes things so in short super important to factor it in uh specifically for those what do you say nice kona wa so nice I guess uh, my thoughts would go to it's a flat run, so you can work more on or you're not stressed so much about being as strong as a really hilly course on the run, but you need to be able to handle a bike really well and dose your effort up and down. Um, Hawaii, the runs basically up and down the whole time steadily, so and it's really hot, so you've got to work to that. WA, I think the biggest limiter or like the, the the thing that's going to be uncomfortable that you need to get comfortable with is being just locked into a time trial position and being comfortable in that locked in position so yeah certainly um different courses have different demands and if you have the time to um address those those limiting or that the harder parts of those courses then it's going to make your performance a lot better come race day General question, and it might be a bit too broad. In terms of the WA is is dead flat, right? So clearly you want to be really comfortable in your TT position. If you had an athlete who has just been riding a road bike, never been down in the bars, and they were, I don't know, four weeks out and said, oh, I've just bought a TT bike for, for Busso, would you just say, don't care, don't use it? Like, where's, is there a certain... Is there a certain point where, you know, you need to have done at least two, three, six months of that that positional work? Because if you're not really down at WA, it's almost a bit pointless, right? It's a great question. Um, I had, when I was super lucky to be sponsored by Trek, the one thing that I used to find really hard is I'd get a new bike right before World Champs and often the week before and trying to get the fit exactly the same was really difficult. You'd think it would be super simple, but it's not. In, as much as the padding on the elbow pads could sink a bit lower, the padding on the seat could have worn in and be sitting lower. I found even subtle changes I would notice quite a lot. Obviously, I was a bit pedantic with it all. Um, but the to answer your question specifically, 
if a, if an athlete can't be in the, on their TT bike or wants to get one but gets it three or four weeks out, as long as they know they're doing the race, they can set their road bike up pretty much in a TT position and at least get used to that position because you're giving up so many watts if you ride a road bike than if you can get into a comfortable TT position. Like probably at 40K an hour, it could be 100 watts. So it's a hell of a lot of time, a hell of a lot of um, time you're leaving on the course if you don't don't make that switch to the TT bike. Yeah, and they can, I mean, yeah, as Reid said, a road bike can be set up very aggressively in a time trial position and a time trial bike can be set up very um, conservatively to get to basically the same position. So the answer would be, yes, I'd ride it, but I would be setting it up as close to that road bike position as possible. It's interesting. Just a quick tip for triathletes in general, unless you're riding really technical um turns and things like that on your road bike if you're not in crit races and i would actually i always and chris liado taught me this is run your saddle on your road bike as pretty much as far forward as it'll go on the more relaxed frames the more relaxed geometry of a bike frame and have a longer stem stem at the front that way um you're actually then much closer to your tt position in general and you're developing the same stress on the muscles um Otherwise, it is a really big change and everything hurts differently when you go from that relaxed road bike position to a TT position. And in fact, even if you look at the pro two and now, most riders are running their saddle all the way forward, really long stems, small frames, to the point that, like many of my gripes with the um, bike industry, it's like, guys, let's change the geometry of road bikes. No one's, everyone's running their saddle as far forward as they can go or close to it. Let's uh, accommodate that so they have more options um, and have, yeah, a little bit longer stems um, as standard. Or let's just make the frame, yeah, like I said, change the geometry a little bit. All right, that is it for this week. Short and sweet, hopefully informative. Steve will be back after Sunny Coast with his usual gibberings. And we have a very special guest joining us. Yet to be determined who that is, but we'll go hunting. <laughs> See you next time. See you guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers.